The new year is the perfect time to start building credit scores. Because when your credit scores increase, your opportunities do too. Like loan approvals and lower interest rates. Chime makes it easier to keep building your credit with a secured Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. You can use Credit Builder everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. Chime helps you build your credit score safely by using your own money to make everyday purchases and on-time payments. To apply, just open a Chime checking account with a $200 qualifying direct deposit. And don't stress, there's no annual fee or credit check required to apply and get started. Start building your credit history and finding new opportunities with the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Late payment may negatively impact your credit score. Results may vary. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy, and we are here to wrap up a jam-packed week three of college baseball. We said before the week that this was going to be a thrilling weekend of college baseball, that it was loaded, that there was all this action from coast to coast, and it absolutely delivered this weekend. There was some really exciting baseball around the country. We're going to talk about the Shriners Hospitals for Children College Classic in Houston, where Joe was. A lot to get uh, to there, where UCLA handed Texas its its first loss. Both of those teams go two and one in the tournament, as does Tennessee. Uh, so a lot, lot to talk about from Houston. We've got Georgia and Georgia Tech, where I was this weekend. Georgia Tech coming out on top in that rivalry series. There was big news uh, in the Mississippi State Tulane series as Landon Sims left his start on Friday night with the trainer, and then Tulane came back and won the series and moves into the Baseball America Top 25. Uh, there's plenty more to talk about. There, there, there was an awful lot this weekend. Northeastern upsetting NC State, Gonzaga taking down Oklahoma State, Clemson sweeping South Carolina, uh, Florida taking care of Miami and Coral Gables. We're going to get to all of that and more here on this week's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. All right, Joe, uh, there... <laughs> There was a lot there that I touched on. Uh, we're, we're obviously going to start uh, in Houston, where you were. Um, I, I'm sure that you were just happy to be back at the the Shriners College Classic, a place that that is, uh, of course, near and dear to your heart. Yeah, always good to be back. I, you know, I tweeted on Friday, it's good to be home. By that, I meant Houston, but more specifically the tournament, which I've talked before on this on this podcast, although I guess every podcast is statistically speaking, probably someone's first who's listening. So, you know, it's it's a tournament that I attribute to me getting into college baseball. I went to this tournament as a kid. Uh, my my mom dutifully drove me there before I could drive. So she was very relieved after after the point where I could drive myself to this tournament, I'm sure. Shout out but, to moms. Uh, you know, yeah, shout out mom, for sure. Everybody's mom. Um, yeah, I so I I I always point to this as what got me into college baseball is is um, going to this tournament, seeing like high level college baseball up close. So um, it's always nice to be back. Um, it does make for some, as Teddy knows very well, it does make for some long, some long days and late nights because you know playing three college baseball games and and uh, assuming or hoping that they're going to stay to under three hours is a 
a uh, tough task. So that that's kind of inevitable. It comes with the territory with this tournament, but yeah, definitely enjoyed my time. Got some, got some Whataburgers was able to squeeze that in uh, last night. So I think I've, I've completed what I would call a, a good trip now. And I will top it off later by sitting in traffic on the way to the airport, which feels like an authentic experience. So, um, yeah, a good weekend all around. I, I, um, you know, I guess I suppose we will jump into kind of the recap here. Uh, Teddy, you may remember on our preview episode, we, I asked six questions, one of each team that was going to be in the field, you kind of reacted to them. So I figured we'd do that. We'd reverse that now. So I will, I will revisit the questions we ask. I will answer the question, whether or not it happened. Um, and then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of go from there, but hopefully that'll keep us on a little bit of a, a little bit of a course here, as opposed to being on a, on a, uh, aimless journey. So, um, let's start at the top with Texas. Why don't we, um, my question with them was how does the pitching look against Tennessee and LSU the two best offenses they faced? And the answer was quite good. Um, they held Tennessee to two runs. Uh, impressively, they had held LSU to one run. Um, it was Pete Hansen on Friday, obviously Tristan Stevens on Saturday. Stevens was the better of the two. Although Hansen was good. Like I'm not trying to, to downplay him, but, but Stevens was, was excellent with, with his outing. Um, you know, seven, seven strong innings there. Uh, and, and individual pieces of the bullpen looked pretty good. Aaron Nixon came on on Friday when it looked like Tennessee might be making a little bit of a run and kind of shut the door there. And then freshman lefty Luke Harrison, also quite impressive. He's already emerged as a freshman as Texas's one of Texas's moment of truth relievers. They used him in big spots on Friday and Saturday, and he just looked completely unfazed by them. So uh, that certainly is a little feather in their cap. You know, if you want to nitpick it a little bit on the pitching side, UCLA, um, you know, five runs is not necessarily anything. It's not so much the run total there on Sunday. It's not really anything to get too worked up about. But the concern there is more that, you know, Tanner Witt was scratched from his start. And every indication is that it was truly precautionary, not precautionary in the way that like sometimes they say that and then we find out much later that it's something different. I suppose I can't say that for certain, but just the reporting around those that are closest to that program seem to suggest that it truly is precautionary in the truest sense of the word there. But it, because of that, everyone kind of got slid down a spot. And although, again, five runs not necessarily an apocalyptic total. I mean, you can win a lot of games giving up five runs. It, it did feel like they were having a little trouble for much of that game, figuring out the right combination of guys. And I think they knew they were going to have to piece it together a little more on Sunday, but it did kind of feel like UCLA was just constantly putting pressure on Texas and making things happen. And so it seemed like they struggled a little more in that regard, but you know, I'm willing to give them a pass on that just because that was a last minute thing they had to had to do there because they they did, they were expecting to have Tanner Witt in that game. So I'm going to say that Texas passed that test in terms of how the pitching looks against these these really good offenses. And if Tanner Witt is able to return to the rotation in short order, then then uh, all the better. So um, that's it. That's a big check mark for the Longhorns this weekend. Yeah, I mean you have to be happy with the way that they pitched, especially Pete Hansen and Tristan Stevens uh, and the rest of the crew there against LSU and Tennessee. The Tanner Wood situation after the game, David Pierce told reporters that um, he's been nursing some muscular soreness, it kind of sounds like, in, in his right arm, um, that it's very tender, um, that structurally it seems to be fine, uh, but he didn't 
feel like he was a hundred percent like Pierce didn't feel like what was a hundred percent. And so he decided they weren't going to run him out there uh, on Sunday. If that is all it is, and he's able to just rest up um, Texas is fine. Texas is fine. If this takes a couple weeks to resolve and frankly, Texas is fine. If they had to withstand uh, an extended Tanner Witt absence even, but uh, just missing Tanner Witt for a couple weeks here, um, whether whether it's one week, two weeks, three, you know, who knows? Um, but they, with Lucas Gordon being able to just slide into the rotation, Lucas Gordon would already be in the rotation for nearly every team in the country. Uh, so I, I think that, that Texas will be fine there. Uh, they'll figure out how they work the, uh, you know, bullpen behind him. And, you know, he gave him four pretty solid innings, it seemed like, against UCLA and uh, so I, I have no real concerns long-term about Texas and their pitching staff. Um, hopefully Tanner Witt is back soon. Uh, but I, again, I, I think Texas is, is built to withstand this. And uh, you're going two and one in this tournament. No shame in that. Texas was not going undefeated this year. They're off to their best start since 2009 anyway. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, a lot of positives come out of this weekend if, if you're the Horns. Yeah, one of the other ones is for the, for Texas is, um, you know, the defense looked up to the standard that we expected. I, I noted in the piece I wrote on Friday or Saturday, I wrote about Texas twice, so those days kind of run together a little bit. But you know, there was, uh, yeah, it was it was Saturday after Tristan Stevens starts. Like he was excellent. I'm not taking anything away from him. However, it's not as if LSU just kind of rolled over or that he was really just like mowing through the order. I mean, LSU hit some balls hard. And most anything in the air was going to get run down by Texas outfielders. I mean, they've got a lot of speed and athleticism out there. It's a really solid unit. So um, that was on display, I think, time and again. Silas Ardwan behind the plate also made some really some really nice plays. There was a caught stealing on Friday against Tennessee where that I just think a lot of catchers don't make that play where he, you know, it was like a, a little bit of a delayed steal. I think it's, you know, it's been long enough now that the actual details are a little bit fuzzy, but moral of the story, like he kind of looked off balance behind the plate and he didn't come fully out of his crouch. It was like kind of an all arm throw to second and he, and he got the runner, you know? So um, you just saw a lot of stuff defensively for Texas that I think is, is, is going to pay off uh, has already started to pay off and will continue to, um, to pay off down the road. So another positive there, even if by the way, you know, the offense, was fine. You know, the, the offense is, is just kind of is what it is. We've, we've talked about this kind of um, several different times already this season. And there, I think there are some, some real positives to take away from it. I think there are also some things we're still waiting on. For example, Mitchell Daly is, is, is really going through it. He's still getting on base at a pretty decent clip, but on Sunday they, they sat him to give him a day off. Uh, that was his, his first game of the year where he was not in the starting lineup. So there are some guys going through it a little bit. There are also some guys doing some really heavy lifting. Uh, Murphy Staley's off to a nice start. Eric Kennedy, you know, Doug Hodo out of the, the leadoff spot really kind of creates some havoc. So, um, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that for Texas, but it was it was kind of the Texas team that we expected to see. They totally lived up to the number one billing, um, and I would expect that to continue. So um, let's move on to LSU. Uh, one and two on the weekend, uh, kind of a, a weird a weird tournament for them. Honestly, they dramatic win on Friday against Oklahoma walk-off home run for Jordan Thompson. Uh, then they, they lose their last two games and, and, you know, losing to Texas on Saturday when Tristan Stevens throws really well, 
um, okay. Uh, then they lose a game to Baylor on Sunday. Uh, so the question I asked before I just kind of start riffing here, but the question I asked was how does the pitching staff hold up? And I actually think like by and large, the pitching staff was, was, was okay. You know, I, I don't think it was necessarily where you're like, Oh boy, there's a, a ton of problems here. Um, you know, okay. They gave up nine runs to Baylor on Sunday, but that was as much, I think, defense in a lot of cases as it was the pitching staff. So I'm kind of going with a push here for LSU. The thing I, I will say is that they have a really high volume of good arms or talented arms. And I think we saw that with, they used in one game, you know, that twice against Oklahoma and Baylor, they used something like five, six, maybe seven different pitchers, fewer against Texas, but um, they've got a lot of different guys that, that have good stuff or could potentially be um, big parts of the, of the puzzle for them on the mound. I just, I'm not exactly, I just don't feel like they know who those guys are yet. It still feels like they're really sorting through that, which is fine. This is only the third weekend of the season, but I think what it kind of led to is the games on, on Friday and Sunday, it maybe felt like they were spinning their wheels a little bit. Um, and that really maybe isn't fair. Um, but it, it just struck me as a pitching staff that while they performed mostly fine, I would say, um, I'm not really coming out of it sure that I know anything close to what the LSU pitching piece is going to look like once we look up and say April or May. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's fair. Uh, it's a new staff. It's a lot of new arms. Uh, they're they're working through things. I would say um, not a good weekend overall for LSU to come out of this thing one and two. Um, yeah, no shame in losing to Texas on Saturday. They had to fight really hard to win on Friday against Oklahoma. I mean, and there's no shame in that either, but they had to fight really hard for that game. And then they weren't able to get it done on Sunday. Um, they're going to have better weekends than this. It just, they faced some good teams and they, they didn't come out with wins. And, you know, it, it happens that this doesn't really change their trajectory at all, but, but I would, you know, generally say that like, yeah, they're they're It seems like they're still fighting it. I, I don't come away you know, from afar feeling like I know terribly much more about LSU than I did going in. I, one thing that should be said is they made 10 errors on the weekend and obviously that's not going to fly. Half of those were on Sunday. Um, and you know, that's, that's a, a, a whole separate thing, but it, until, you know, I don't want to say in, until they clean up the defense, the pitching staff is going to, you know, suffer for it, but cleaning up the defense would certainly help the pitching staff figure out what it is. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, just to put some numbers behind it there, you mentioned the 10 errors over the weekend, they're fielding 940 as a team. Um, that's uh, to your point. That's just, I mean, that it, the number will not remain that low. <laughs> you know, this, this feels like the, the nadir perhaps, uh, but they do have some questions to ask defensively. Many of them, you and I, and really anyone who was uh, paying attention, um, you know, was asking, going into the season, you know, questions about who was going to, who was going to fit where. So uh, we will see on that for sure. Uh, you know, the, the funny thing is they, they, they win that Oklahoma game on Friday. And really, I mean, this was, this was closer to being an LSU sweep. I feel like than it was to LSU even winning an L I'm sorry, LSU getting swept this weekend than it was to LSU winning two of three, because that Friday game, Oklahoma, by and large was the better team. You know, Jake Bennett gave them a better start than Blake money gave LSU. 
Um, they out hit LSU. Oklahoma did 13 to nine. It was just that LSU has the bats who can really change a game with one swing. And we, you know, Cade Doty had a couple big swings um, to kind of get them back in the game late because Oklahoma was up at 1.3 to nothing relatively late in the game. And Jordan Thompson obviously hit a walk-off home run eventually. And that's, that's what this offense can do. And that is the, the feature of this offense, but um, you know, yeah, you're, 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 you're right on the money with saying there will be better weekends for this group, but, but man, they, I think they come out of it. Um, I guess the positive spin of it is they come out of it really understanding the areas in which they're going to have to, to get better. Um, I will say, you know, it wasn't a weekend where we saw like a big offensive explosion for LSU, but obviously there's, there's no worries about that unit. It's the, Hey, who, who are our, who are our real guys on the mound? And also what are we going to do defensively? Because we cannot continue to field the ball this way and, and have success. So um, okay. So Tennessee, uh, the question was, uh, Tennessee two and one on the weekend, uh, can you avoid running hot and cold? And I guess this question is maybe one that we'll have to continuously monitor, I guess one weekend we can't necessarily, but I guess what I meant by that is that, you know, are you up for this weekend or do you come out flat this weekend? And I think it's easy to look on Friday. It was easy to say, uh, Tennessee's maybe coming out flat, uh, but they were facing Texas. They were facing Pete Hansen. They were facing the Friday arms for Texas and they lose seven to two. And I think in hindsight, we look at that and say, uh, well, the, the fact that they were in that game at all, and it felt like they were somewhat into that game late, I think is maybe more of a positive than it looked at the time because they, they played really well the, the last two games of this tournament. And I wrote about it on Sunday that, you know, their, their, their offense, which you would have been right to wonder if they were going to take a step back this season, they lost five regulars from last season team, uh, including their top three hitters for average. And you, you kind of wondered what you'd be, what you'd be looking at. And this, this offense is reloaded. It's, you know, a combination of guys who have, who've been around and who have been regulars, Drew Gilbert and Luke Lipsius, Jordan Beck, um, Evan Russell. It's also some guys who have been in the program a long time that just haven't had their moment to shine. You know, Trey Lipscomb, for example, five home runs on the year leads the team. Uh, Jarrell Ortega, their starting second baseman, really stung the ball this weekend. A guy who Tony Vitello said that up until basically the morning of opening day was not expected to be a regular. And then, you know, some things happened and they, they had to put him in there and he hasn't let go of the job yet. So it's also freshman Jared Dickey. Uh, they put him in the leadoff spot. He's got eight walks and one strikeout on the year. So he's, he's a good fit in that role. You know, I wrote about Christian Moore um, on, on Sunday a little bit in that story that, you know, he may have only been in the lineup on Sunday because Drew Gilbert uh, has had a little minor injury that they, they scratched him from the lineup on Sunday. So, you know, Christian Moore ends up in the lineup and he hits a, you know, a double and inside the park home run and an RBI single um, is one of physically one of the, the most gifted players on this roster. And, you know, they've still got some guys like Blake Burke who hit a home run late in the game with easy power that they're not really, they're not really getting at bats for because They just don't have at bats to give. And so they scored 10 runs against Baylor on Saturday. They scored eight runs yesterday and it felt like it honestly could have been more against Oklahoma. Um, so this, this offense, it feels like it is just kind of reloaded. Obviously tougher tests are still to come throughout the sec, but uh, it is passing the early test with, with flying colors. And this was the biggest one they've had uh, so far. Yeah. I mean, I, I know your question and we talked about this on, on the preview pod, like, yeah, like it, your question is a fair one. Uh, I think the question on everyone's mind going into this weekend was just like, okay, like Tennessee, you put up all those numbers at home offensively. What is it going to be like at minute made? 
which is, I mean, not a pitcher's park by any means, but, you know, going on the road, facing some better competition uh, in a big league park, like what was that going to be? And uh, on Friday, it was, it was not great, obviously, but you know, it's Texas, it's the best pitching staff in the country. And to your point, it's the Friday arms of that. And then to come out and score 18 runs the next two days against Baylor and Oklahoma, two teams that, have the ability to pitch uh, fairly well. Uh, I, I thought that was uh, very encouraging, especially ending uh, the weekend with a with, with a shutout uh, of Oklahoma. Hard not to come away impressed with the way Tennessee played this week. They're up to number eleven in the top twenty-five. Kind of wish we could have found them a spot in the top ten. They'll be there before long. I have a feeling. And I mean, you, you start to look ahead at this, and um, you know, it's Rhode Island, and then it's a. South Carolina team that got swept by Clemson this weekend, but then it's at Ole Miss at Vanderbilt. Um, we'll find out an awful lot about exactly how good this Tennessee team is uh, those two weekends uh, at the end of March and start of April. Yeah. Two other things really quickly on Tennessee before we move on. One is that the, the young pitching here, I mean, we, <clears throat> excuse me, as I, as I struggle with getting going this morning in my voice, but um, you know, we, we kind of wondered with, with blade Tidwell on the shelf, you know uh, what, how this, this starting rotation would kind of recover and, and chase Dollander has been, has been very good. Some of the peripheral numbers suggest that he's been a lot, he's 485 ERA, but the peripheral numbers are very, very good. So I think there's just been some, some bad luck there in terms of batted balls and things of, of that nature. And uh, also, and I will get to this in a minute, some bad luck with um I wouldn't even say bad luck, but just uh, teams running on him. <laughs> and so there's a lot of guys in scoring position. And so it doesn't take a lot of hits to score those runs, but regardless, but he's been good. The, and also these kids they've got, man, Chase Burns and Drew Beam um, both looked really, really good in their starts. Burns, you know, five innings on Friday and they were right in that game up until Burns left. Um, and so you know, he, uh, you know, Texas got to Camden Sewell a little bit, which was surprising because Sewell's been so solid. But, you know, as Burns exited the game, like Tennessee was right in that game with Texas. He was electric for stretches. And then Drew Beam, who really hadn't thrown, he'd started a couple of times, but hadn't thrown that many innings, came into Sunday and and was really good as well. With His stuff was 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 excellent. So if those two guys can shoulder a load this season, and that's always a variable freshman, right? You just, I mean, last year, Speaking of Tidwell, like he threw almost a hundred innings and for a freshman, that's obviously quite a lot. And he shouldered it pretty well. Like, can they do that? Because they might end up being asked to do that. The other thing I would say is that I mentioned running on Tennessee. I think that might be a theme that feels like a soft spot for this Tennessee team. They were left in the fall without an experienced or even really a catcher at all. Evan Russell, who came to Tennessee as a catcher, but that's been five years ago now. Uh, he'd been playing outfield. Evan Russell moves back behind the plate. West Virginia transfer Matt McCormick came in, although he was more of an offensive catcher DH type anyway, but at least he was an experienced catcher. He transferred in the fall, did not make it through the fall. He stepped away from baseball. So Tennessee really kind of was between a rock and a hard place there. So Russell's the primary catcher. And then I think the other thing is that, I mean, Dollander, they, they, Baylor was the, is the game in question here. And a lot of those bases were stolen on Chase Dollander, but the combination of having guys who are kind of slow to the plate and having a catcher who's not necessarily a catcher does leave them a little bit exposed. So I think that's something to watch um, moving forward with the volunteers. Uh, okay, UCLA, um, I'll, I will clear out here to let 
Teddy take a little bit of a victory lap on, on the Bruins. And not that I was a doubter, let me be clear, but uh, he was a little more specific on what he thought about UCLA going into the weekend. But the question was, will they play up to the competition for this young team? The answer was yes, they go two and one. Didn't look very good on Friday, a two to one loss to Baylor where they didn't score a run until the ninth inning, um, but looked pretty good the, the last two days, really broke out against Oklahoma with 15 runs and then beat Texas on Sunday in an impressive victory. Uh, the pitching was was outstanding. You're not going to be surprised to hear that. Um, but the baby Bruins really stepped up and and look, I, you know, I wrote in the top 25 recaps that maybe this was a growth weekend for UCLA. After I wrote that, I thought more about it and was like, that could be true, but it's also just as likely that you know, they came up, come out next weekend and look flat because that's what young teams do sometimes. But certainly this felt like a big step forward. Yeah. So, I mean, on the preview podcast, I, I said UCLA was leaving Houston with two or three wins. They get it done. Uh, you know, on Friday, Tyler Thomas for Baylor was really good. Uh, but Jake Brooks was almost as good. Like that was just a really good pitcher's duel. Like, yeah, they, they lost and yeah, they, they didn't score until the ninth, but also, they loaded the bases in the ninth inning um, and, and had the, the tying run 90 feet away when the game ended. So like, I don't, I don't feel bad about the way UCLA played on Friday at all. Uh, they go out, they really take it to Oklahoma on Saturday and then they go out and they hand Texas its first loss of the season on Sunday. And they were in control much of that game. Uh, I think Maybe the, the thing that I was most excited about this weekend was that UCLA used seven pitchers this weekend. They gave up a total of six runs, no errors. Uh, five of the seven pitchers that they used this weekend were new uh, to the 2021 recruiting class, that, that top-ranked class that we talked so much about coming into the season. The two veterans, if you will, were Brooks and Max Ragic, the, the two pitchers who started on Friday and Saturday. The next five pitchers they used on the weekend, because uh, Brooks went complete, uh, in, in that loss, uh, the next five they used were all either junior college transfers, uh, or, or freshmen. And primarily they were freshmen. And all those guys did was hold Texas and Oklahoma to one run in 12 and two thirds, 19 K's three walks. I mean, like I will take that every day of the week. Uh, and I know the Bruins will as well. I, I think that again, you just have to love that. The, Offense is a bigger question, and like I say that knowing that they scored 20 runs over the last two days, including 15 runs against Oklahoma. But, you know, it looks like they're still trying to figure out what their best lineup is, and that's fair. There's a lot of new there. But if the young pitchers are at this point in week three, I think that that's going to give them plenty of time to figure out where they are offensively. And, um, you know, it should be no surprise that UCLA is pitching at a, a very high level again. That's what the Bruins do under John Savage. But to see it come together so quickly with so many newcomers involved was uh, was fantastic. Yeah, I think there's a little bit more I wrote about this after the Oklahoma win, which, you know, it's easy to write this after they score 15 runs. But I think there's a little more physicality here. And we would have never been able to see this coming necessarily. But I think, you know, a guy like Carson Yates, who had a really good weekend, you know, taking a step forward is, is part of that. So, um, you know, he, he's he's a big piece there. Um, Cody Schreier had a good weekend, Ethan Gorson. Those were guys that were a little more obviously on the radar because they were part of that, that recruiting class that just arrived in, in 2021. So, um, yeah, good weekend overall. <laughs> you know, oh, I meant to say <clears throat> it was funny that that Friday, that two to one game between Baylor and UCLA, that game was over in like two hours and eight minutes. It was the first game of the whole tournament. And I, I mentioned how some of these games 
can really run, run long and it can create late nights. And so obviously that happened even on that first night, by the way, because the middle game was probably the longest game of the tournament. And so uh, the, the game right after that one, but the, the people who are working there and not, I don't just mean the media, but like the scorekeepers and the people who were doing like the press box announcements and uh, things like that. Like you can kind of just overhear their chatter because you know, they're just kind of their work is, is um, they're not having to like do like, the press is doing where we're like tweeting and writing and stuff like that. So they're just kind of chatting and that game got referenced all weekend, like about, Oh man, we just had that one game that was so like, it just felt like being wistful for the good old days, you know, of like how quickly that game moved. It was just one of those things that they could not let go of all weekend because they just, it was so nice at two hours and it could have been even shorter. The ninth inning was kind of long and, and uh, I just thought that was kind of funny that it was, it felt like a uh, longing for, for good days past there, um, which I guess they, they were in, in that way, but uh, okay, let's move on to uh, Baylor. Another two in one weekend, kind of a, um, a surprising two in one weekend when you consider that, you know, outpitched UCLA on Friday and then, you know, beat LSU on Sunday, Frank, and frankly, and this is related to my question, which is, will the pitching be good enough? Um, frankly on Sunday, like I, I, I just didn't think it would be, you know, it was the LSU offense against Baylor's Sunday arms, you know, and frankly in the loss to Tennessee Baylor's Saturday arms didn't fare that well. So I kind of went into Sunday thinking, well, okay, unless Will Rigney, their starter, who's, who's been quite good this year leading up to that start, you know, unless he really goes off here, like, I just have a hard time imagining Baylor's pitching staff holding down. LSU for any real length of time. And I guess, you know, they didn't necessarily shut them down, but they did enough on a day when LSU made five errors and uh, they took advantage there. And, um, you know, Baylor's also one of these programs that just tends to play well in this tournament. We, we talked about that. So like the answer here is, you know, is will a pitching be good enough is like, yes, I guess, because they went two and one, but that's not necessarily really how they went about it. I mean, Jake Jackson, their Saturday starter really got pummeled by Tennessee, but you know, Tyler Thomas was excellent on Friday and I wrote about it that, you know, this is a guy who has never been easy to hit hitters have never hit Tyler Thomas. The trouble has been walks, including a freshman year when his like ERA number was great. His batting average against was excellent, but he's walking more than a batter per inning. And you just can't have that obviously. And then he had deals with some injuries and then the COVID season happens and yada, yada, yada. But fast forward to now. And, and he really looks like a guy who's going to go toe to toe with, you know, perhaps any non-Texas, you know, University of Texas team in the Big 12 on Friday nights and maybe even against Texas if he has a particularly good day. Uh, more questions about the second piece there. Um, but I did like, there were some positive things about Will Rigney's start too. And, you know, he's a guy I think that can be a real X factor for Baylor. We've I think we've talked about him briefly in the past before, but, you know, he he's a guy who actually on a pitching staff full of guys who are, pitchability guys for the most part he's a guy who has some real stuff and I think that can be a game changer for Baylor so a really good weekend for the Bears I think offensively uh, they're going to look to make things happen like they really did against Tennessee which I think that was a very specific uh, advantage they were trying to exploit but I do think just generally they they really were aggressive the entire weekend Um, so I think that was a little bit of a window and how you know this offense that is this good and old I think is going to try to get things done. It's not necessarily an offense. They can wait around for a three run Homer. And so I think they're going to look to push the envelope. Well, okay. So like, let's set aside all the specifics of this weekend with Baylor. Is Baylor good? Like, is this the real Baylor? 
because what we've seen from Baylor so far this season is they got swept at home on opening weekend by Maryland. We now think Maryland, I mean, we thought at the time, but we now think Maryland's a very good team. They bounce back, win a series at home against Duke. Duke is a 500 team right now, and I have no idea what to make of Duke. Probably a regional team still, like that That would be my expectation, but like, I don't know. I don't know what that is. And now they go this kind of disparate two and one against really good competition here. Where is Baylor now three weeks into the year? I mean, yeah, it's a good question to the point where after they, so to give listeners kind of a peek on our thinking here, like, you know, we started ranking teams before the LSU Baylor game was over and we created a contingency plan for LSU based on if they won or if they lost. And so the game plays out and like after Baylor wins, like I had the brief thought of like, do we need to rank Baylor? You know, uh, win against UCLA, win against LSU. That's not nothing. And, but then I thought about it again. I was like, yeah, it's a team that got swept by Maryland two weekends ago. And then, oh, by the way, you know, Maryland lost two of three this past weekend at the Keith LeClaire classic. So another crazy transitive property situation, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't really know. I wish I had a good answer on, on what they are. Um, you know, I think this maybe is just this kind of team that um, is going to have these kinds of weekends because the talent, you know, the reasons we liked this team was that it was older and that it was, you know, there was some certainty on what they were going to bring to the table, um, but it's not overwhelmingly talented necessarily. And so, you know, I think there are just going to be weekends where maybe they just get outmanned a little bit. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I truly don't know. I could just sit here and ramble for another five minutes, but like, I guess I'll just leave it. At, I, I don't know. We're just going to have to see, but I think they showed that the upside is pretty good. Um, but I, I just, I, 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 I don't know. I'm gra- I'm just grasping for, for straws here. Cause I'm really not sure. All righty. Grasping for straws, the baseball America college. That's podcast. right. That's right. This is why they listen to us. This is uh, just for us kind of uh, groping around for answers. Uh, okay, so moving on to Oklahoma, and I won't belabor the point here, uh, truly, because I just don't, I don't, you know, um, because I, it's, I don't, not that I would hammer them necessarily, but there just wasn't a ton here for Oklahoma, especially after Friday. What I will say is that I do think this team is going to be competitive most Fridays. Uh, it'll win some Fridays. Like Jake Bennett was very good in his start uh, against LSU to begin the tournament. Uh, I, I mentioned it before. They they really in a lot of ways outplayed LSU and just lost that game. And whether so, there are kind of a two explanations I think possible for what happened the rest of the weekend, where they get blown out by UCLA and Tennessee by a combined score of, as I do the math on the fly, twenty three to three. Either that loss on Friday was difficult enough to deal with that they just came out flat the last two days. I think that's possible. Um, the other thing is just that the depth isn't there, um, particularly when you talk about on the mound. I mean, I think it's pretty clear it's that. <laughs> like, yeah, and that was you know that, that was an issue. Oklahoma to this point seems to indicate yeah, that was, and like when I talked to Skip Johnson in Arlington, like he flat out said, you know, we're an arm or two short right now, and I, it doesn't seem like they've found an arm or two in the last two weeks. Yeah, it doesn't seem quite that, quite that way. And you know, uh, my, so my question for Oklahoma is, I as I started there was will will the offense come around and like the answer for this weekend was really was really no um you know didn't score more than four runs in any of the three games uh they you know the the top of the lineup you know you have guys you trust really at the top you know Peyton Graham and 
Blake Robertson had a, had you know has had an off to a nice start, but like everyone else, like Jimmy Crooks is is among the guys who are who are kind of wearing it right now. Um, you know, he had a couple hits on the weekend and hit some balls hard. So some of it's just like bad luck there, but um, they've got a lot of guys who are just really struggling. And so in a world where the offense isn't kind of helping, you know, in, in a world where this Sunday game, they lose eight to nothing against Tennessee, instead of it being like an eight to six loss, or they win the game nine to eight, you know, being able to win a game like that in the absence of that, what you get is, is kind of what we saw this weekend. So I think until Oklahoma figures out that depth piece, I do think there are going to be weekends that look a little bit like this for them. I mean, Oklahoma has yet to score more than six runs in a game this year. And um, it's just not very encouraging. The competition has been good. Uh, like that they have definitely played one of the harder schedules out there. I don't know how it'll rank in strength of schedule at the end of the season. Cause all of these games have been neutral site. Um, but I mean, they've played three sec teams and, two Pac-12 teams and a Big Ten team, um, Sandwich Brown, Wichita State, and three at home against Northwestern State. But uh, they haven't scored more than six runs in a game this year, and that's just not going to get it done, um, not if you're a little light on the pitching staff. So it's uh, it's not where Oklahoma wants to be. I think that there is talent here, um, that they're going to be able to win some games, but you know, this weekend they got UTSA coming to Norman and UTSA is nine and two. And, you know, it's not the world's greatest nine and two, if you look at the schedule, but I don't, I, I like Oklahoma needs, needs an answer there. Otherwise they're, uh, you know, I don't want to say they're in a real, like, like, like the season's dead, but they, the, they're taking on losses already and, and, you know, they're going to need to dig themselves out of it eventually and waiting until big 12 play to do that doesn't seem like a good idea. So uh, they're going to need a response this weekend at home against a, a tricky UTSA team. Indeed. Uh, my last thing on this tournament is uh, the, if you're at Minimade park, the, uh, the street corn stand, which is like kind of a little up the first baseline. Uh, I give that my recommendation. The elote was, was very good. I, uh, that was what I enjoyed most food wise from what was open. Not everything's open. So like, that's my disclaimer. Like they don't open all of it at Minute Maid Park for this tournament, but they open a decent amount of it. And that was the, uh, I also did not try everything. It was even open, obviously, but, um, the street corn was, was quite good. So that, that I give that my, um, my recommendation also quickly. Did you, uh, Teddy, were you aware that, uh, the torchies was a, a, uh, has, is no longer available at Minute Maid Park. Uh, I was not aware of that. Obviously, since I haven't been a Minute Maid Park in now two years, uh, but they never opened that thing for this tournament anyway. So, well, sure, uh, yeah, it's just right. uh, it's actually better that they've removed the uh, you know the the sign of, of of how sad it is that that you know Torchies is is here, but it's not mm. here. That's right. Yeah, it, is a, it was it was a casualty. So, uh, rest in power to the Torchies at uh, Minute Maid Park. All righty, we. Uh, we obviously went pretty deep on uh, on that tournament, but it deserved it. Uh, or at least that's what we're going to say now, uh, having done it. So we'll, uh, we've got a lot more college baseball to get to from week three here. We'll do that in a second. But first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Joe, outside of Houston, uh, there was a lot of action as well around the country. Let's start in New Orleans, where Tulane won a series against Mississippi State in rather dramatic fashion. Uh, They had to erase a 10-2 deficit in the fourth inning on Saturday to, uh, to uh, to win that game and then came back on Sunday and finished out the series with a one-run win. That's big news. Tulane now is 10-2 and two and uh, has back-to-back quality series wins at Louisiana Tech and home against Mississippi State. The bigger news, though, frankly, is that Mississippi State All-American Landon Sims struck out 10 of the first 11 batters he faced on Friday night and then left with a trainer in the fourth inning. Um, we don't have a great update on Sims's status right now. I think they're waiting for an MRI this week. Uh, Will Clark, of all people, like Mississippi State legend Will Clark, went on the radio broadcast uh, Saturday and said that like, he had been told that Landon Sims felt a pop in his elbow. That's obviously really bad news. No part of it looked good on Friday night. We just now await for some sort of an official word. If Sims is out for an extended period of time, that is obviously a serious blow for Mississippi State and, frankly, for the sport in general. Sims was one of the biggest stars coming into this season and you know had the look of being the best pitcher in the country. He had started the season really well. Uh, and you know from a Mississippi State perspective, that was like the one thing you could rely on right now uh, in a season where they are six and six at this point, Landon Sims coming out and pitching really well was one of the constants. And uh, so now if, uh, if he is out, this is a a real serious issue for, for the Bulldogs. Yeah, no doubt about that. And you, you hate to, I mean, like you mentioned, we don't, we don't exactly know here, but I think we're all, unfortunately assuming something close to the worst here. So um, we will, we will see on that, but, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, even, even with a healthy Landon Sims at this point, you know, that they had lost two of his starts already and 
you know, it's just been uninspiring in general. I mean, this is the, 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 the um, house of cards finally kind of came tumbling down a little bit this weekend in the series, in the series loss. And, and who, who knows what the, just the emotional fatigue of, of what happened with Sims on Friday, even in a game, they won 19 to two. Um, who knows how much that played a role throughout the rest of the weekend, but it does feel like Mississippi state had been a little bit on alert the last couple of weeks. I mean, losing a Friday game to Northern Kentucky, for example, it just felt like um, a weekend like this was probably in the offing at some point. And I think it was um, fitting. I don't know if it's the right word, but it just, it felt like it was the, 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 the way you kind of expected it to happen in that, you know, they get, they race out to a big league on bid big lead. There we go on Saturday, like 10 to two. And they end up losing that game 11, 10. Um, and they lose another close one again on Sunday, but it was that kind of weekend where it looks like, okay, yeah. I mean, the Landon Sims news was always going to be a bummer, but they were on their way to blow out wins in the first two games of that series. And you, you win that series. And then Sunday against a good two lane team, you drop that game. Okay. We move on. That's still a solid series win on the road, by the way. Um, but they, they cough up that lead and then, and then lose it again on Sunday. So just a, you know, brutal weekend in a, in a number of ways for Mississippi state. And now it's going to be a team that really moving forward, assuming Sims is, is out for some period of time, if not the entire season, it's really going to be a team that's going to have to on the fly, figure out who they are a little bit. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a rough spot for them to be in right now. Um, you know, three, uh, three weekends into the season uh, to, to have this kind of, of loss to be sitting at 500, uh, you know, just a lot, a lot just doesn't seem to be going right right now for Mississippi state. They have one more week than sec play starts with the trip to Georgia. Um, that's going to be a challenge of course. And we'll, uh, we'll just have to see where, where Mississippi state goes from here. Um, on the flip side, you know, you're looking at a green wave team that is in the top 25 for the first time since the final rankings of the 2016 season. And, uh, you know, I, it wasn't an easy series win by any means on, on Friday night, they absolutely got routed. Uh, they were down big on Saturday, but the way that they fought back, uh, to get those wins, I, I, I think you, you have to be very encouraged about that. If you're the green wave and, um, you know, right now in, in the American, you would have to say that the Tulane looks like a team that, that can absolutely challenge for a conference title. East Carolina looked better this weekend. Uh, they swept through the LeClaire Classic in Greenville. Um, Wichita State uh, kind of woke up and, and swept the, uh, the the tournament in Frisco. But, you know, Tulane has been the most consistent team in that conference to this point. Yeah, and I'm going to have to see a little bit. I, you know, being that I was in Houston all week, and I didn't see much of really anything else like live. Obviously, I, I caught up with things that just the way I could after games, you know, box scores and video clips and things like that. But I didn't watch much else live. But so Tulane's a team I'm just going to have to see a little more with my own eyes. I mean, there, there are definitely some things that pop on the stat sheet. Their bullpen appears to have been excellent. And I wrote a little bit about Grant Siegel and how good he's been in the top 25 recaps that you can find on our site. But um Bullpen's been good. Starting pitching has been, um, you know, a little bit off and on. Dylan Carmouche got roughed up by his former team on Friday, Mississippi State transfer to Tulane. Um, Michael Massey was good, you know, uh, so there were some some good and bad there. Uh, but the bullpen looks like it's been good. You know, the offense obviously scored a bunch of runs on Saturday to make a comeback there, uh, but didn't do much on Friday. 
it's just okay on Sunday. So, you know, it's a team, I don't know. Like I agree with the general sentiment that like, okay, this team, if, if you can win this series against Mississippi state as depressed an asset as Mississippi state might have been, um, that's still really impressive and suggests you are capable of being, you know, a title contender in the American. Um, so I, it's a team I'm looking forward to kind of digging in a little more on in, in the weeks ahead. All righty. Let's, uh, let's keep this moving. Um, I spent the weekend in uh, in Georgia watching Georgia and Georgia Tech play. Georgia Tech comes out with the series win. They uh, they won eleven to seven on Friday night in Atlanta. Series moved to Athens on Saturday, and Tech wins seven to nothing, shutting out the Bulldogs at Foley Field. Uh, really comprehensive performance. Uh, you know, for Georgia Tech, those those two wins, and then Georgia came uh, back on Sunday, gets the finale, twelve to three at the AAA Ballpark in Gwinnett. Um, Georgia Tech showed some serious serious upside this weekend. Chance Huff was outstanding on Friday night. He outpitched Jonathan Cannon, who you know is a preseason All American and has some draft buzz. Uh, but Chance Huff, you know, really um, really outpitched him there. And, you know, I, I think the most encouraging thing about this weekend from a Georgia Tech perspective is that Chance Huff looks like a legit Friday starter for the Yellow Jackets. Uh, and that is a huge development. They're still trying to figure out the rest of their pitching staff, I would say. Um, yeah, they got the shutout on Saturday. And even at the time, you know, when they went out and then gave up 12 runs on Sunday, it kind of makes you rethink the way the shutout happened on Saturday. But even at the time, Zach Maxwell started that game, goes three innings, walks six batters, did strike out seven. Um, he got he got out of it without allowing any runs. And then a couple of freshmen, Cody Carwile and Aiden Finitary, come in and throw three scoreless innings each to finish off the, the shutout. But you know, that game could have gone very differently if Georgia is able to just find a clutch hit early in the game. And you know, so Tech is going to need more length out of Maxwell. They need to sort through some things in the bullpen. Uh, they are, I, I think they're starting to find the guys they can rely on. Uh, but one of the guys I thought that was, was Dawson Brown, who had pitched really well, kind of as the, the closer in the, the first few weeks of the season. And then he got roughed up a bit on, uh, on Sunday. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to see where Tech goes. But to have found a, a legit Friday starter, I think is a really significant development for them. And they're beginning to find the right pieces, I think, in the bullpen. It's still going to be a work in progress. This is still going to be an offensive-dominated team. But I, I think that as long as they're able to continue to build this pitching staff, uh, that this is not the final product, that uh, that, that Tech looks like a team with uh, with high-end upside. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important. The context here is important because – you know, we're not really asking Georgia Tech to be Texas or Oregon State or even Maryland in terms of like its pitching staff, right? I mean, like we're just asking Georgia Tech and for Georgia Tech's own sake, we're asking them to, you know, just be a little bit more solid there. Just find a couple of more guys because, you know, last year was and several years before that have just been a real struggle, <laughs> you know, it's to get like more than one guy at a time. Uh, pitching well. So the idea that, you know, okay, Chance Huff could be this type of Friday guy and okay, like 
you know, maybe Zach Maxwell is a five inning starter in a perfect world, or maybe he's back to the bullpen, but either way, like you've got someone there that is a little bit of a known commodity, like, okay, you know, that's, you know, something that we can chalk up there. And um, you're learning more about, you know, Cody Carwile and guys like that. So like, it, it really is just kind of for Georgia tech, a little bit of a process of, can we find a couple of more guys? I think you're, you're exactly right. It's still going to be an offensive team. They are still going to have games where they give up. 12 runs. They're still going to have games where they walk too many batters, probably in the games that Zach Maxwell starts. Like, I think that's just going to be the reality here. Um, however, you know, like I said, baby steps are kind of what we're looking for. And I think uh, Chance Huff being what he was and the way in which Georgia Tech shut out Georgia on that second day, I think qualify as maybe something even more than baby steps, but certainly steps in the right directions. So that was that was all good for Georgia Tech. And oh, by the way, just you know, winning the series, a big deal for Georgia tech, because, you know, Georgia has, um, you know, been a little bit of a bugaboo for them. So to get over that hump, um, I think is a, is a big deal for that program. For UGA, um, obviously not a good first two games of the series. The, the Friday game is a little, the, the 11 to seven scoreline is a little deceiving. They were behind big for most of that game. Uh, they scored six runs in the eighth inning against the Georgia Tech bullpen, which you know was protecting a seven-run lead at the time, they're up eight to one, and um, they were. I, I, it's not like they were trotting out arms that they just wanted to get work, but it's also not like they weren't doing that. Um, so, you know, I, again, that that game never felt as close as the final score, uh, except when Georgia like literally had the tying run thrown out at third base. Uh, that that time it, it it did feel a little close at, at that moment, but you know Tech immediately responded with runs in the bottom half of the inning, and uh, you know Georgia didn't have a response for it in the ninth, and that was the end of the game. I, after after those first two days, though, I mean it, it was it was not a great look. Um, I don't know how much to read into anything. Uh, from Georgia this weekend, Cannon was not at his best on Friday. He'll have better games. Like that's a really good offense, and like he fought through six innings anyway. Uh, the what happened on Sunday was not good at all. I don't know if you know UGA was flat from the day before. The fact they responded really well on Sunday was exciting to see. Uh, Corey Collins homered twice in the series, and and that's exciting to see. Uh, Parks Harbor homered uh, on Sunday, and, and and that's that's important for the Bulldogs uh, moving forward. To, to just get some of that going. They also have some bad news going on this week and that Dylan Ross, uh, who was projected to like, was in their rotation. He pitched on Tuesday because um, their series against Akron was, was shortened uh, by bad weather. So he, he didn't make his start on Sunday. They didn't play that game. So they threw him on Tuesday. And I think the plan was just to get him a couple innings and then he was going to come back on, on Sunday and, and start again. Uh, but he comes, he, he got injured uh, on Tuesday night. And now, you know, we don't know, we don't have an official word yet, but it, Scott Strickland made it sound like they're not expecting Dylan Ross to come back anytime soon. That was, you know, you know Ross was the top 150 prospect in last year's draft coming out of junior college. It's actually, I think top 120 uh, in the BA 500 and having him, you know, in that rotation was part of the real attraction to, to Georgia this year. 
so that that is a loss uh, if they are without him for an extended period of time. The good news is Will Childers, who was a big deal coming out of high school in 2019. Um, he's expected to return on Tuesday. He missed last season with Tommy John surgery. Uh, so getting him back would be uh, would be significant, and, and maybe he can take over that spot in Sunday's rotation. I'm not concerned about Georgia's pitching depth overall, uh, but they need to find the best arrangement right now. And you know, I it, it was a tough weekend for Georgia. They got another week, and then they'll have Mississippi State coming in. They just have to have to work through some things by then. But you know, right now, when you look at what Vanderbilt, what Florida, and now what Tennessee are in the SEC East, you know, I, I, I don't know how Georgia matches up with them necessarily. And, and uh, you know, if, if they're going to compete for a division title, they're, they're really going to have to work through some of this stuff quickly. Yeah. I noted about that. Like that, that's a, that's a great point. Like we, you know, we had questions about, to a certain degree, Florida and, and Tennessee. And, and so far there's been a lot of positive from, from those programs. And so it's, it is funny that even before SEC play starts, it, the, the sands are shifting in terms of, of our expectations. And um, that, that's, that's the way it goes, but lots to prove for Georgia moving forward. Alrighty. Um, let's uh, let's go to Stillwater, Oklahoma, where Gonzaga was playing Oklahoma State, still is playing Oklahoma State as we uh, record this on Monday. Sunday's game got pushed to uh, to Monday by bad weather. Uh, but that was after Gonzaga won the first two games of this series. They won uh, a pair of one-run games, 4-3 to three on Friday, 2-1 to one in 10 innings on Saturday. Gonzaga got great pitching this weekend, obviously. Gabriel Hughes on uh, on Friday was, uh, was excellent. And uh, Oklahoma... State just wasn't able to ever get the offense going, and, and they pitched well themselves. But they uh, they come out on the wrong end of of a couple one run ball games. Gonzaga now moves into the top twenty five. They are eight and two on the season. Their only two losses come against Oregon State on opening weekend in surprise, and you know they've uh, they've compiled some some really nice wins to this point. It's not uh, you know the it, it, it's not like they're playing a, a poor schedule. Uh, they've uh, they've challenged themselves. They have yet to play a home game. They won't play a home game for another couple of weeks. They aren't even scheduled to play a uh, a home series until the start of April. So they're uh, they're building a real strong RPI. Last year, they won a series at TCU, uh, and that that combined with them winning the the West Coast Conference propelled Gonzaga into the hosting discussion. They were shortlisted as potential hosts. Didn't they ultimately didn't host they were the number two seed in Eugene. Yeah, but this this weekend, no matter how today finishes, uh, has the like it, it can reverberate all season in the exact same way their their series win at TCU did last year. Um, if Gonzaga keeps taking care of business the way they have to this point, uh, this is a team that that is going to remain in uh you know in, in the national conversation all season long now yeah it's a good point i mean they, they as you were talking i was scrolling through it a little bit and, and and you're right that the number of road games the difficult games they, they obviously they've, they've won against oklahoma state but they they lost a couple games to oregon state but even those losses are going to bake in and age pretty well road series against Missouri. That's a winnable series for them. And because Missouri's in the sec, like that could end up being a, a, just a positive series win from just a strictly RPI standpoint, because recall listeners that, 
you don't necessarily have to win series against RPI top 25 teams for them to really be positives on your resume. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're consistently beating teams that are RPI top 100, you're going to be in good shape. And so uh, Missouri certainly, I think falls into that bucket and beyond anything else that the talent here is, especially on the mound, really good. Like it's, you know, probably just in terms of stuff, um, it, it might be arguably, you know, the, one of the most talented staffs in at the mid-major level. When you talk about Fridays being a Team USA guy in Gabriel Hughes, who's been excellent, you know, Saturday they'll run out there, William Kempner, who's like throwing 100 miles an hour from a low slot. You know, they've got a, a reliever in Brody Jesse who's running it up, you know, in the high 90s. Um, in addition to just some like really solid college pitchers, like their, their steady reliever, Michael Spellacy, who, you know, closed out the, the first win of the series. But um, it's just a really talented pitching staff, and that's where their bread is going to be buttered this year. Uh, with an offense that was turning some pieces over from last year. So I'll be fascinated because if they kind of continue on this trajectory, I think you're on to something there where this is a, a two seed type team. I mean, and, and of course for them, that probably means Corvallis, which would be, you know, a, a tough situation, a tough scene there for Gonzaga. But, you know, if things really break right for Gonzaga, there, there really isn't any reason why they can't be in a similar place as they were at the end of, of last year, which, you know, had they won a series against San Diego to end the regular season last season, um, maybe we would have been talking about them hosting. I don't know. Like, but they were, they were definitely in that mix and this team has, has shown the ability to be kind of similar in that way. I mean, like I, you're talking two seed and I, that's probably where it ends up, but the, the, the stuff is there for them to be a host this season. They're, uh, they, they have 12 more games against major conference competition that continues next weekend when they go to Missouri um, you know, I mean, Missouri isn't the top of the SEC, but, you know, also even bad SEC teams have pretty decent RPIs, you know, and they play Oregon State more, they play Oregon, they play Washington, they, they, they play a good schedule here. And the West Coast Conference looks to be pretty solid so far this season. Now, I mean, I feel like we say that a lot about the West Coast Conference and it winds up being like a one-bit league, but, uh, you know, th- this season, I, I think it can be more than that. and you know, again, if Gonzaga dominates the way they did last season in the conference, you know, I, I, I don't see any reason why this team can't be at, at least what it was a year ago. Um, but we'll, we'll just have to, to wait and see on that with the, with the Zags. Also coming into the top 25 this week, we had a pair of ACC teams, Clemson and North Carolina. They actually enter in the reverse order of that North Carolina and Clemson, uh, North Carolina swept Coastal uh, in Chapel Hill, Clemson swept South Carolina uh, in that series that moves across the state. Uh, first time they uh, they swept their their arch rival in, in quite some time there. Uh, did so in front of a record crowd at Doug Kingsmore in Clemson on Sunday. Uh, some great crowds throughout uh, uh, throughout college baseball this weekend. I can't believe we didn't mention this during the. Uh, during, during all that time we spent spent on Houston, uh, there were more than 24,000 fans at Saturday night in, in Minute Maid Park for Texas LSU. Clemson set a, an attendance record. Like there were 10,000 fans Sunday for, for Georgia, Georgia Tech. It was, it was that kind of weekend. The weather played a role in it. <clears throat> uh, the matchups play a role in it, I'm sure. Just a, a wonderful to see throughout college baseball. Joe, the... The Tar Heels, you know, have been, and Clemson too, they've both rolled through uh, so far this season. The Tar Heels resume is slightly better 
Uh, we felt like that's why they enter ahead of Clemson, though they have one loss and Clemson has none. Uh, but th these two teams were teams that we did not project as regional teams coming into the season. Uh, I obviously had something to do with that. <laughs> but now, uh, the way that they're playing, they're certainly looking like it. Which which of these teams is, is more surprising to you, I guess? And and, and what do you see going forward for, from the, the Tigers and the Heels? Well, I guess the, the more surprising one for me is UNC, but that's kind of interesting. I guess I'll just talk through it in real time here. UNC is more surprising to me that they are where they are here, just because that was a team and you and I talked about it. It was very uh, Austin love centric last year. You know, the, the, their Friday guy really led them to a bunch of wins on Friday. And then Saturday and Sunday were like real coin flip situations for the Tar Heels. And so the idea that they needed to replace him and the, if they weren't going to be able to replace him, that the offense was was just going to have to be better than it was, um, was a leap that I wasn't quite necessarily prepared to make. Now, what I will say in that is not to take anything away necessarily from what they've done so far, because there there has been a lot of positive. The, the offense does look more physical than I was giving them credit for. You know, whether it's the freshman Vance Honeycutt or Alberto Osuna got going a little bit this past weekend, or Johnny Castagnazzi. Like, there are good pieces there offensively that were not there uh, either in a literal sense or in Castagnazzi's sense. He seems to have taken a little step forward. So that's good. And the pitching has been has been good enough. Certainly, you know, ER and or two, that'll, that'll play, as they would say. Uh, we'll have to see if that, that continues, but certainly the early indications on, on guys like, like Max Carlson, for example, have been, have been pretty positive. However, the thing I will say is that um, a lot of close games there, two walk-off wins against um, Coastal Carolina over the weekend. Obviously there, there is a, that's a feature because it shows that, Hey, they're, they're coming through in, in, in big moments, you know, also it's not hard to imagine that series having flipped a little bit. And even the, the middle win for nothing is, is a comprehensive victory, but not necessarily a, a blowout in the uh, traditional sense. Also played a two nothing game against East Carolina, you know, in the middle game of, of that series. So, it's not that I'm, necess I'm necessarily pumping the brakes. I think North Carolina is better than I thought they were going to be. Actually, I know North Carolina is better than I thought they were going to be. Um, I think it's just going to be a team I'm still a little more in prove-it mode with um, versus Clemson, where, um, sure, the competition early on wasn't particularly inspiring, and that includes an Indiana team that I just think is is down this year. It kind of appears um, that way in, in, in general. But... Um, the thing with Clemson for me is that some of what was a concern for them last season, I think has been remedied in a way um, maybe it's just confirmation bias, but what I was looking for for them has seemed to have, have come to fruition a little bit in terms of, you know, Mac England looks like something like the real deal in the rotation and, and, you know, Nick Hoffman starting pitching has been, has been very good as well. And the offense, I actually liked some of the, pieces there and some of those guys were a little bit slower to come along and have now started hitting a little bit more um so at the risk of kind of letting it be confirmation bias i think just the way i saw clemson potentially on the high end being better than we anticipated coming into the season has come a little bit to fruition so i guess i'm more surprised um by unc and also i'm interested to see if the tar heels can kind of continue to win close games the clip they have so far this season because history also shows that you're going to lose a good number of those if you continue to play those kinds of games 
Well, that's interesting because I am definitely uh, more surprised by Clemson than by North Carolina. I, I figured this something like this was on the table for North Carolina. I just didn't think that it would necessarily come to fruition this fast. Um, they were they were a very young lineup last year, and you know nobody made a bigger deal out of how bad they were without Austin Love than me. They're under 500 team last year without Austin Love, and it, it wasn't particularly close. Um, but the, the 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 fact that they did return a lot of those players, if, if they were able to make jumps going into their sophomore or, or, or third season on campus, and, and it seems like that that's happened, and, and they're they're reaping the benefits of that. And they got Max Carlson back, who uh, missed the second half of last year uh, due to injury, and, and that's helped their pitching staff. And uh, you know they've they've found the right pieces, and um, you know North Carolina has the talent, has the pedigree to to do that kind of thing. Um, Clemson, I was a little more concerned about. I just, you know, it, it, it they showed a lot of flashes last season, but you know weren't able to ever you know build momentum at really any point in the season. Finished on a bit of a down note. Finished under 500 for the first time in 60 years. But they've uh, they've come roaring back this year, and uh, it, it's been it's been impressive. I don't know what to make of the schedule to this point. Like Indiana, we usually think of as a regional team. Well, I, we don't think of the Hoosiers that way this year necessarily. And you know they're now four and six, uh, although they are uh, four and three since leaving uh, Clemson. There, there is something to be said for that. Hartford is you know moving down to division two and winless so far. And, uh, you know, South Carolina is seven and four, but really had not been tested at all prior to this weekend. Sweeping that series is still very loud, however. Uh, but I am, I am much more interested in like, all right, what does Clemson look like moving forward? And the good news is we'll find out quickly. They, the ACC opens play for nearly every team this weekend, but Clemson and Louisville, uh, because they don't take buys, uh, or need to be home during final. Like they, they have more relaxed rules about finals than every other ACC team, basically. So they uh, this year are, are not opening ACC play uh, a week early. They're, they're getting their their bye week in um, for for this week. And Clemson's getting Northeastern, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. But they just swept a series at NC State, and then Clemson has Miami coming in for their their first weekend of ACC play. Uh, so we should continue to find out a lot more about the Tigers over the next two weeks. UNC's ACC schedule is very much backloaded. Uh, they get Pitt at home this weekend, then they go to Duke, and, you know, again, what is Duke? Um, they're six and five right now. It's hard to it's hard to know, and really that's not an onerous trip at all for, for UNC going down. Uh, the road to to Durham, so you know, yeah, it's a road series, but it's you know one of the better road. It, it's the cushiest road series UNC can get. They sleep in their own beds, and the bus ride is like fifteen minutes. Um, so yeah, I mean, they they've got some some uh, some on ramp still to to build up to tougher series like Georgia Tech and and NC State and Virginia and the rest of it. So. Uh, you know, I, I'll be interested to see where both of these teams go from here, but I, I do feel pretty decent about where the Tar Heels are as they enter ACC play this week. All right, let's uh, let's just get to that NC State series. This was maybe the most surprising result of the weekend. You know, we talked about, I feel like I talked about it on this podcast. I know I talked about it somewhere, about how 
Northeastern was going to be a good test for NC State because NC State was 8-0 coming into the, the week, uh, but had not faced anything close to serious competition, I would say. They played Evansville, Lawnwood, High Point, and Quinnipiac. And uh, just none of those teams really were able to, to challenge NC State in any real way. Uh, the Wolfpack started the week by losing a midweek to Campbell. No real shame in that, but uh, obviously that wasn't a great start to the week. And then Northeastern rolled in, and Northeastern can really pitch, and they showed it all weekend. And they, uh, they, they come out with a sweep in Raleigh. Northeastern is the first team to sweep NC State in non-conference play since 2006. UCLA did that. Uh, they, the Huskies never trailed on the weekend. Uh, all three starting pitchers, Cam Schlittler, Sebastian Keene, uh, and Wyatt uh, Scotty did, uh, you know, they were, they were excellent. And uh, Northeastern just very comprehensively went in and, and, and took care of NC State. Yeah, I felt a little vindicated because I feel like I'd been telling people, and I'm sure you had done the same because we have similar thoughts about it had been telling people leading up to the season about Northeastern and that's a team to watch and a team that's really, really talented and has legit, not just good college players, but, but draftable guys like, you know, and it's a little bit different than your average Northeastern team, Northeastern, the region, not the school um, Northeastern team, but um, so I, but they kind of got off to an uneven start. So I kind of felt a little vindicated that they, (laughs) they did what they did to NC state this weekend. And the yeah, pitching I mean, Northeastern just... was three and five coming into this weekend. They, yeah. they'd done nothing that was indicating that like this was coming. They, they lost both of their first two weekends. And, um, you know, last weekend lost a doubleheader against Marshall. Um, you know, Marshall's off to a, a, a has a nice record right now, but it, there's a long way from, from losing a doubleheader to Marshall and, uh, in Florida to, uh, to sweep in NC state and Raleigh. Yeah, so it was it was nice to see them bounce back and actually play up to to what we thought their potential was. And it should be said, like we sometimes we gloss over it because the teams, oftentimes, I will say, the teams that are really really good from cold weather places overcome the disadvantages, right? Like we're used to seeing UConn go down to well this this year they went down to Florida and won two out of three games at a, at a decent tournament in Tampa, and you're just like, well, you know, they're they're it's amazing what they're doing, you know, having not played very much outside, and we tend to kind of like leave it at that and gloss over that. Um, when in reality, that's just because UConn is operating at as high a level as any team in that region. And they are unique in their ability to kind of do that. Um, so I think there's some of that here with Northeastern that, you know, look, I mean, this is a, a, a team that was, is still falling out <laughs> as, uh, as it goes. So perhaps this was a step in, in the, uh, the right direction there. So it will be interesting to see what they do against Clemson because at least on paper, um, and I think it would still be true if you made me pick between NC State and Clemson for which team is, is even as I said, nice things about Clemson, we have them ranked higher than NC State right now. But if you made me pick, if you made me buy up stock in one of those two teams for the season, I think I'm still buying NC State stock. But uh, I paused there in well, case you disagreed. Yeah, so, so there's there's an interesting thing there. I, I don't know which which I would be interested in, but but here's the thing about NC State. They this doesn't have to be anything more than a wake-up call, anything more than a speed bump. Um, you know, they, this is not going to tank their RPI necessarily because Northeastern typically puts together really nice RPIs. Um, this is, this doesn't change what they can do in the ACC. That This doesn't have to change NC State's season. However, 
NC State is now on a four-game skid, and they haven't looked particularly good in it. They now, this week, welcome Notre Dame into Raleigh to start ACC play, and ACC play could not start any harder for NC State. They have Notre Dame, followed by Florida State, Georgia Tech, and Clemson for the next month. Um, you know, obviously, like we've talked about it, like a lot of these teams are still figuring things out, but those four teams are all top 25 teams right now. Uh, those four teams can beat you. You know, you're, you're going to face really good pitching against Notre Dame and Florida state. You're going to face an outstanding offense in Georgia tech. Like every part of NC state is going to be tested over the next four weeks. So either this week was a wake up call. And, you know, they get right and they get ready for ACC play or they are going to find themselves in a massive hole again for the second straight year at the start of ACC play. Last year, they got themselves out of it. But, you know, the the slate coming up here does not allow for NC State to sit around and wonder about anything. You know, they have to just get right back up on the horse and, and play better baseball over the next month. Yeah, that's uh, it, it is interesting that they're kind of in a similar place. Um, yeah, the optimist view is they've got them right where they want them now. Um, they're they're down after getting swept, but um, the the thing about it is that I you know I'm inclined to not worry too much about the offense. Like you know, okay, yes, you know, Tommy White finally faced some pitching that could throw the ball by him and, and actually pitch to him, and, and we saw that as a result. But we saw it more generally with the entire offense for NC State, but. I think the team is still going to hit pretty well. And I guess furthermore, I take that a step further and say that they are going to have to do that because this team is geared to be that kind of team. And I say that not just because of the offensive numbers they put up so far against admittedly until Northeastern overmatched competition, but you know, it's a team that's fielding 955 and they are another team. We talked a little bit about this with LSU. They are a team that, you know, is, is moving pieces around to, to some defensive positions that aren't necessarily, natural positions. And I think they have the athleticism and flexibility where that can be seen as a positive, but I also think it means that they've got some players in positions that maybe in an optimum defensive lineup, they wouldn't necessarily be in. Now I say that, and also say that I do have a lot of confidence that by the end of the season, this team will be defending the ball better. NC state tends to feel the ball, particularly on the infield, extremely well. Um, and, so I have confidence that that will turn around to some degree. I just don't know, especially coming off of last year's team being elite, elite defensively. I don't know that this, this team is certainly not ticketed for that. Um, I don't know how much better it gets. I do think it gets a little bit better. The other thing I would say is that I think Northeastern has a pretty good offense. NC State, this NC State team was never going to be about pitching, but like you didn't like to see that Sam Heifel got hit around. Uh, really bad, uh, really tough relief outing for Chris Villeman over the weekend. Um, Matt Willardson pitched pretty well. So I guess there's, there is that uh, he pitched pretty well in general, but um, you know, they, they got hit a little more than I think uh, those individual pieces that they're really leaning on Villeman and Heifel specifically uh, getting hit a little more than, than I expected is not great. And the team, you know, booted the ball quite a bit over the weekend. And like I said, is fielding nine fifty five. So um, in weekends when the team also wasn't hitting, that's exactly a recipe for what we saw, which was getting swept. Yeah. The concern here offensively is that, uh, NC state scored two runs. They were unearned runs against Northeastern starting pitching th this week. And it, that, that rotation that they faced this week is uh, a challenging one, but you know, what they're going to face in ACC play is also going to be challenging. So 
again, they uh, they got to get things worked out. And uh, and with ACC play starting this week, uh, they they don't have a whole lot of time uh, to uh, to waste on that. Um, the last thing that I wanted to cover here, uh, and I know I'm still going to be leaving out plenty, is that Florida went to Coral Gables and they beat Miami in a series. Miami won the game on Friday night behind a really nice start from Carson Palmquist, who moved into uh, the Friday night role for the first time in his career. He beats Hunter Barco in uh, what was perhaps the best pitching matchup of the day. Florida, unbothered by that, bounced back, outscored the Hurricanes 19-4 to over the next two days, and they win the series. Uh, they have won four straight series at Mark Lightfield. Kevin O'Sullivan just generally owns the rivalry against Miami. Uh, it's like 37-16 and 16 in his career against the Hurricanes. Uh, the, the biggest development, I thought, this weekend was Brandon Sprout pitched really well for Florida. On Saturday, he had eight strikeouts and six and a third scoreless. If that is the Brandon Spirit they're getting, and he certainly has the ability for it, that's a guy that came in with a lot of a lot of buzz that you know pitched for Team USA over the summer. That that is a high draft prospect this year. If that is what they're getting from Brandon Sprout now in the rotation, uh, Florida has one of the best one-two punches in the country. Yeah, totally agree with that being. The takeaway for Florida is the most positive thing there. In addition, to just winning the series. I mean, that's the, that's the other takeaway is this felt like the Miami Florida series that we're used to seeing, where it's like Miami comes out and, and wins a, a game. You know, uh, Palmquist outpitches Barco. You know, Miami wins the game, and then the next two days, Florida just says, mm, "Nope, sorry, this is this is our series," and and they kind of win the thing comprehensively even though Saturday's game was closer than that it's kind of similar to you mentioning the Georgia Tech Georgia game like that game was closer than eight to one looks there were some late runs for Florida but Florida really controlled that game uh, from beginning to end Um, if you're looking for some positive for Miami they also in that Brandon Sproke game got a really good outing from Carson Ligon a freshman is that is that how it's pronounced Ligon L-I-G-O-N I I haven't heard I think it's probably uh, Ligon or or Ligon maybe that's the the French in me trying to do that I I I am not positive (laughs) Uh, yeah. So anyway, but so he came out and, and pitched pretty well himself in that start. Um, and in a world for Miami where, you know, things have not gone well, uh, for Alejandro Rosario, um, who did not pitch you know, this weekend, who did correct. Uh, Jake Garland did not pitch particularly well in his start, which was new. He'd been really good up to that point, but in a world where Miami is kind of like grasping around for trying to figure out who their pieces are. Uh, that is a pretty big development. Um, it gets hard from here, you know, doing it more than one week is, is obviously a challenge, but if you're looking, if you're Miami and you're, you're coming off of a, a tough weekend over the last two days, uh, that is certainly something you can take with you. Yeah. Right now it seems like Miami has a narrow path on the mound and Florida was able to blow that up, even though they lost on Friday night, because, you know, Palmquist is not like a guy that, that, is going eight innings right now. I don't know if he'll ever be that, but but he's certainly not there now. And um, so they went from Palmquist to Gage Zeal on Friday night, and Florida ran up Zeal's pitch count to the point where, uh, you know, he, it, it, they, they just got to the relievers uh, that Miami wanted to, to use. And, and Miami won the game, and but, but Florida was able to make them work for it, and that really affected the rest of the series. And, you know, that that's that's fine. From, from a Florida perspective, um, Miami just 
has to build a little bit more depth so that if something like that happens again, uh, they they have the relievers to to keep going to uh, on, on on Saturday and Sunday. So uh, something to watch for Miami. Uh, they're out of the top twenty-five now. It's I, I'm not terribly concerned about the Canes. I, they just have some things to work on, and I'm sure we'll be seeing them again uh, before too terribly long. Ten pitchers for Miami on Sunday. So you're correct. They are they are trying to figure it out. No doubt about that. They, uh, they've got options. They just need to find the right options. Um, all right, Joe. That was that was the weekend. Um, we glossed over. We didn't even mention. Not even glossing over. Gloss over right now. Uh, Ole Miss uh, won a very entertaining series mm-hmm. at, at UCF. Oregon State uh, won a series against UC Irvine. Um, there were there were fireworks and, and, and exciting series coast mm-hmm. to coast, like I said. So, uh, anything else you wanted to touch on, Joe? Um, no. I mean, I like <laughs> we could really. I mean, we could really go <laughs> go. Uh, go on. I mean, you know, Oregon state getting a nice win over UC Irvine, a series win against UC Irvine. That felt like an opportunity for in a larger context. You and I talked about this a couple of times over the weekend in a larger context. It feels a little bit like opportunities are slipping through the big West's fingers. Um, that was certainly one of them. Not that we would have predicted UC Irvine to win that series, but that is just one example in what's already been three weeks full of them. For the Big West, uh, I feel similarly. By the way, we had a similar conversation about Conference USA. Um, I might write about this week that this week for three strikes. Uh, I do a little research on it and figure out if there's really some there there on that. But um, those two conferences, I think, have had some opportunities uh, slip through their fingers. And, and this weekend, you know, uh, UC Irvine and Oregon State, even though they did win one of those games in that series, felt like a microcosm of, of what we've seen from that league so far. Yeah, I, and I would also say the. The Big West had a, had an abysmal weekend. Uh, the Big Ten didn't have a great weekend either. Um, Conference USA didn't have a great weekend. There have to be here's the thing, Joe. Sixty four teams have to get into the start tournament. Right. We're three That's weekends right. in. I don't want to just start running around and eliminating bids, but um, you know, we mentioned that we didn't have UNC and Clemson as being in the field at the start of the season, and that was partially because we were trying to carve out more bids for those three conferences: the Big West, Big Ten. Conference USA, and well, you know, here the ACC is to uh, to claim its bids back, and uh, you know, we'll we'll see where things go from here. But uh, all of this stuff matters at the start because this is how this is when you build the RPIs that compound themselves all season long. Yeah, it's, uh, I, and I promise I will I will make this quick as we as we run a little bit long. But yeah, I think I think that's a great point because last year it was a, an ACC that got squeezed for mediocrity reasons and scheduling machinations reasons, you know, we don't need to relitigate that, but ACC gets squeezed and it really did open the door for, you know, four deserving, but four conference USA teams, which is not what we predicted to get in the field. And, and I'm sure there were other examples of, of two bid leagues and, and various leagues that got in as a result of the ACC, not getting its usual allotment of bids. And I, and I do think this is a year where we revert a little bit back to form for a number of reasons where I think there are going to be some pretty meh, and I guess there were some pretty meh ACC teams that got in last year. Hello, UNC last year, who we just talked about. But um, I think even more meh gets in from leagues like the ACC this year because they're back to more of a normal schedule. Um, some of these other leagues are not taking advantage of their opportunities. So I, I do think if you made me guess now, our field looks a little more 
quote normal uh, than what we ended up with at the end of last year. Absolutely something to track and we'll have projected in season projected field of 64 is here before too terribly long, I am sure. Alrighty, uh, if you want to read more about the weekend, uh, you can find that over at baseballamerica.com. Joe wrote plenty from Houston. I wrote a lot from Georgia and off the bat has you covered with uh, everything from coast to coast as well. Uh, the full top 25 is available there uh, with uh, you know Joe's detailed recounting of, of every team's uh, weekend that was. We'll have plenty more to come throughout the week. So uh, be following us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We'll be back here with another episode of the Baseball America College podcast on Thursday, previewing week four, uh, Pac-12 opens conference play, ACC opens conference play. Uh, there, there's some exciting stuff around the country in addition to that, but that is the, the headlining action um, coming into to the fourth weekend is, uh, is those two conferences getting into, uh, into conference play. Uh, so we, we'll be back here to preview that. Make sure you're subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us there. Thank you all for listening. Uh, this was a jam-packed episode. We obviously went a little longer than normal. Hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed it all. Uh, we'll be back here on Thursday, like I said. Until then, for Joe, I'm Teddy. Thank you all for listening. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.